HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country, to offering scholarships to high school students is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. Monday, it's 12.04, slightly behind schedule here, but this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and you are listening to the Heritage Radio Network, where we are still in the midst of our summer fund driver fundraiser, and um, so I'm just telling you now, just reminding you, in case you haven't done it already, go to the website, hit the beating heart, and give us some money so that I can continue to bring you the incredible programming that I have been bringing you, along with my other um, hosts and hostesses on this radio station. And today we have a very, very, very special guest, somebody that I have been pursuing for seven years, folks. That's seven years out of the eight plus years that I've been doing this show. Um, his name is Olivier de Schuter. He is a professor of international human rights law at the Catholic University of Louvain. And what brought him to my attention all those years ago was that he was uh, from 2004 to 2008, or to 2008, he'll explain it to me, um, was the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food. Yes, from 2008 to 2014. Sorry about that, Olivier. And he is also the co-chair of the IPES slash food or the International Panel of Experts on Sustainability in Food. Um, welcome to the show, Olivier. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you. It's a great pleasure for me, and thank you for having me on the show. 
Oh, and uh, congratulations. You have just won a James Beard Award for Leadership. So um, what was that all about? How come they've suddenly decided to pick you out of the pack? No, <laughs> just kidding, because you are a big leader in the food industry. But it's but your role has been something that is somewhat different from sort of the typical chef uh, chef driven, um, you know, leadership, uh, programs that, uh, I generally associate with the James Beard foundation. So, um, how did they come to pick Olivia de Schuter? Was it because of your work with the UN or because of, uh, the plate of the union or, or just a combination of all the wonderful things you do? Well, I, I think for the most part, this is recognizing that no change can occur without working at the political issues behind how food systems are organized. Mm. And in my work as UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food and now with IPES Food, we have been constantly emphasizing the need for governments to be held accountable and for the question of power in food systems to be addressed. I think what is done by civil society, by what is done by, by chefs uh, in order to promote sustainable food is absolutely important, but without understanding that behind the system that we are trapped in, there are political choices that are made, we shall not be able to make uh, progress in, in ways that are systemic and, and sustainable. And so I think this is, in fact, what uh, the James Byrd Foundation is now recognizing. I'm so glad that they are, because I've been actually saying that for years, and which is why I was interested in your work when you were at the UN, um, and why I subscribe now to the IPES newsletter, um, which I talk about all the time on my show, actually, you'll be happy, gratified to know. Um, and um, in fact, I've had Molly Anderson on several times, because when I initially tried to find you um, in the last couple of years, I was directed to Molly, and, and I'm, I love her to death, and she's a wonderful guest. Um, but it was really uh, one of the things that struck me about the IPES newsletter was um, just recently, I think it was in March or so, there was an article about uh, the European Union was meeting to discuss food policy going forward, and you had uh, various stakeholders involved. You had agronomists, you had farmers, you had government, you had industry, and everyone was talking about quote unquote food policy. And I just thought to myself, my God, you know, like these talks were going on. It was, you know, in the article, it was reported they were going on in, in all kinds of countries in India and in Mexico and in Canada, you know, these very same types of talks with the same cohorts. And yet the United States was you know, conspicuously absent from any discussions like that. And that was one of the reasons why I was so anxious to have you come on the show. So, um, well, yes, there is a very interesting development taking place today in Canada since uh, uh, Trudeau arrived at the at the presidency of at the prime ministership of Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and what we are trying to promote in other regions is simply for a country or a region to adopt a food policy. And this is the message that, together with Mark Bittman, Michael Pollan and Ricardo Salvador we sent uh, to the U.S. public that we needed yes. a food policy to bring together different sectoral policies that today are not working in coherence with one another. And it is a message we're now trying to promote also within the uh, European Union. And I'm very confident that people shall gradually understand that having an agricultural policy is fine, but if it is disconnected from environmental policies, from health policies, from trade policies, from investment policies or education policies, such an agricultural policy shall 
fail to make um, any difference, even if the intentions uh, behind such a policy may be noble and well, well intended. And so I, I, I think it's now an idea that is um, indeed gaining ground. Canada is probably the most advanced in developing a coherent cross-sectoral food policy, but the U.S. and the EU should move in this direction, um, I hope, very soon. Although I have to say I'm very pessimistic uh, for the U.S. given the current political climate. <laughs> Oh, God, Olivier, you have no idea how pessimistic most of us are. I mean, we're all just kind of gritting our teeth and waiting to see when the next shoe drops. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm sure that the, the entirety <laughs> of, of the European community is just scratching their heads and thinking, oh, my God, let's just hope he doesn't unleash a nuclear war. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I wanted to ask you a little bit about... um how the you uh, you know since you mentioned Canada and um, and I wanted to talk about the the European Union how how are those um, how are uh, those regions preparing for the biggest challenges that we face which in my opinion are um, are are sort of the the uh, the climate change issue and the growth of population because unless you know, as as all of these uh, big corporate um, mega agribusinesses like Cargill, uh, you know, all of the the really the really big players in the meat industry and so forth. This is what I'm most familiar with. You'll have to forgive me. I'm very meat centric because I just wrote a book about it. Um, but, uh, you know, they they're all promoting these ideas that if we don't continue to pursue uh, the policies that exist in the United States, which are, you know, more and more uh, bigger commodity crops, uh, more and more meat, um you know, we'll fail to feed our population by 2050 when it rises above 9 billion. And so I, I just wondered how is the, when I read that IPES newsletter, for example, the EU is coming together to have developed what you were talking about as coherent food policy. How does, how do other countries stack up uh, against that? Like say, for instance, uh, China or India, where population growth continues and, um, and yet their access to things like uh, clean water and arable land are diminishing. Um, are they thinking in the same, along the same lines, do you think, uh, as you are in Canada, as you are in the EU or in Canada? So the, the, all of these countries are, in fact, in very different situations, and the uh, choices they face are, are very different. Mm -hmm. Let me just say that population growth is indeed in some regions, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, yeah. still a significant problem. That is where the fertility rates are still the highest and where life expectancy is still increasing so that population grows much faster than in other, any other region of the world. And mm. in, in Africa, for example, a continent that today has 1.2 billion people, they shall be 4 billion uh, by the end of the century. So it is 
a very impressive growth that can be expected. And the only, the only response to this is really the education of women so that they can yeah. have children later in life, have fewer children, and, and that they can dedicate themselves more fully to the, uh, to the few children they have, if you wish. Uh, today they have very large families, yes. in part uh, because of low levels of education of women and also because of the lack of social protection. And, and this is certainly something that should be addressed. But, but I think it's important to, um, to, to recall that all these countries you've cited are in very different situations. China, for example, is a country I visited in 2010. It's mm. a very um, special case. It has 21% of the world's population, 1.3 billion people, but only 8% of the um, arable land available and 7% of fresh water available. So they have to, they have to increase production mm -hmm. in order to reduce their dependency on food imports and food aid. And they have managed to do so throughout the 80s and 90s largely by investing in small-scale farming and in solutions that have proven to be highly efficient in the use of resources. Now, they are facing serious problems of land degradation, but they are making significant progress, and, and it is a country that can make us um, uh, optimistic about other regions in the world. Yeah, but Olivier, they're, India, also, they're also buying up enormous amounts of land in Africa where they grow the crops for their, for their burgeoning meat industry. So I, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that in there as something. I mean, they have the res they have the, the wherewithal, they have the uh, the financial resources in which to basically take land away uh, from what you're describing as a population that will quadruple <laughs> in the next no, you know, five years. So, 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 so that's going to be a problem. It, it is. It is. It is clear that uh, China is is aware that its ability to feed itself shall be seriously threatened, particularly by land degradation mm. and water scarcity. Water water and as a, as a natural reaction to this threat, they are trying to basically outsource food production for their population mm. by buying large areas of land, particularly in Central um, Africa and in Eastern Africa. Yeah. And this is having a serious impact feeding land speculation in these countries um, in, in recent years. Um, and, and it, is, it is indeed a source of concern. Um, India is in a very different situation. India has been through, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, the Green Revolution. That was a very strong effort to increase production by moving towards mechanized, large-scale production, particularly in the Punjab state in central India. And they are now realizing the huge negative environmental impacts that these choices made um, in oh. the past uh, are having today on the ability to maintain existing levels of production. And there's now a very strong ideological debate in India as to whether this path is sustainable or whether they could invest much more in small-scale sustainable farming. Mm -hmm. They call this no-cash farming because there's a large movement there that uh, offers to produce food without investing in buying external inputs and in buying machinery. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a very interesting, uh, again, uh, debate uh, to watch in India. Of course, in, in regions such as the United States or the European Union, we have made those choices many years ago. The space there is left for small-scale sustainable farming 
is very narrow indeed, yes. and it shall be extremely difficult for us to change the trend, to move away from large-scale industrialized farming systems, despite the fact that we now know that these are not the most productive systems. They are the most competitive right. on market. They can achieve economies of scale. They can therefore satisfy the shareholders of large agribusiness corporations, but they are not the most sustainable or efficient way of using scarce resources. And I think we must realize that the pathways we've chosen in the 50s and 60s uh, are simply not the, the, the kind of responses we need for the questions of the 21st century. Yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and, and let's go further on that, because um, I, I, you know, our current system, what you have just described as our, our sort of like monocropping uh, industrial farming, and, and that has indeed plateaued in terms of production. And at the same time, we have now discovered that this has totally exhausted the soil and polluted our waterways. So now the big idea is soil reclamation, regeneration, carbon sequestration. So in the United States, this is a this is a new trend that I've just started reading about in the last eighteen months. I'd say, you know, wide in a more, sort of widespread level. And I'm wondering, first of all, how much of that trend is is being uh, used in Europe, in the EU now, and how prevalent do you think the trend will become, given the way that many agricultural schools and extension schools are funded, uh, both here and abroad. Um, do you, I, I, it sounds to me like you're kind of pessimistic about getting uh, farmers to move away from that uh, and towards a more holistic approach. But, you know, what do you think the chances are? I mean, I think farmers are seeing more and more that they have to spend more money on inputs. Um, and that's yes. that's becoming a problem. So do you think that this whole sort of new trend of thinking about cover crops and mulching and, you know, no-till farming and stuff, do you think that has a chance of, of spreading through uh, larger swaths of industrial pro- cropping? Look, I think it's extremely important that we now have governments realizing that soils that could be carbon sinks if the health of the soil were given priority and if the biological life of the soil were to be restored, um, that these soils today uh, being treated the way they are are actually net emitters of uh, uh, Mm. greenhouse gases and are um, um, not uh, in any way managed in a sustainable sustainable manner. And as you rightly said, Katie, uh, the reaction of farmers is to add ever more inputs in order to compensate for the loss of natural fertility of the soil. This is completely unsustainable for many reasons, including because it links food production to fossil energies uh, that shall become, of course, scarcer, uh, more pricey in the future, Mm. and and, and will make farming more costly even than it already is. Um, So we must move, but it is very difficult for farmers to make this shift. And part of this uh, um, is because it... It simply is not how they are trained to think about land. Let me explain. The typical agronomists today and the farmer schools today um, are teaching farmers how to domesticate nature, how to master (laughs) nature, how to basically control it in order to use it uh, a bit like um, a, a resource we want to extract value from. Instead, we must understand nature as a partner which we must interact with in order to respect its natural cycles and equilibria. And managing soil in that way means not overusing it, means 
um, using, um, um, you know, shifting in, in, in farming and polycropping instead of, modi, of, of monocropping. Mm-hmm. It means um, minimizing the use of external inputs and, and trying to restore the natural fertility of the soil. But that is not the paradigm under which farmers have been working in our regions. So I am, I am quite pessimistic because there's no strong incentive for them economic or cultural uh, to, to shift course from the, uh, the, the, the lessons they've been taught for many, many years now. Yes. I mean, my concern, I was just speaking, uh, my earlier interview uh, was with an a, a, um, agricultural reporter named Chuck Abbott, who you may know. Um, and we were lamenting the fact that agriculture is uh, agricultural research is um, practically non-existent unless it is funded by these large agrochemical or agribusiness companies, um, and that's been, I think, a, an ongoing problem, you know, for the last forty these 50 companies, years. These <clears throat> companies have, of, of course, no incentive no. to finance research that will basically teach farmers how to use less of their products. Yeah. Right. And and they have no incentives in um, encouraging the the autonomy of farmers, and also the the training has been largely um, non-contextual. In other terms, it's as if the very same way of farming would be applicable across all areas, despite the very different topographies and and com- and complexions of the soils that we meet in different regions. And I think it's we have to return to farming that is much more contextual in its approach and, and linked to the land that is cultivated in particular settings. I, I, would, I agree with you 100%, but I, I, see, um, <clears throat> I see that as almost an impossibility. I mean, when I speak to other, you know, agricultural uh, experts, uh, for example, I was speaking to somebody at the American Farmland Trust recently, and he was saying, you know, in those big monocropped fields of wheat or corn or soy, you know, where we grow our big commodity crops, like we are not set up for any other kind of agriculture there. And so the idea that we can move away from that and and expect to have distribution, production facilities, you know, all of the other things that go along with um, growing uh, food crops of any type, um, we simply don't have that infrastructure in that part of our country, which is essentially our cereal basket, our grain basket. Um, and I think that's largely true in many regions that grow grains or indeed. cereals, right? Um, but I, but you, indeed. But but there is one one taboo we must dare affront here, which okay. is that <laughs> this mode of this mode of farming you know, large scale with heavy machinery and monocropping schemes is one that is um, economical on labor. It's it's machine intensive, but it's not labor intensive. And until we ask what the right price of food is Mm. and how well the farmers should be remunerated, um, we shall fail to encourage farmers to make a shift towards types of farming that will use less heavy machinery and more workforce, perhaps, to have much more complex and diversified farming systems. I believe we should create employment. We should create good, well-paid employment in agriculture in the future, not continue the trend of pushing people away from the land and replacing them with machines, 
But that requires that we question this idea of the low-cost food economy that has been so dominant in our policies over the past 50 years. Would you say that those policies are as dominant in the EU as they are in the United States? I feel like that we are kind of, um, you know, the the great big elephant uh, that has gone wholesale into this kind of cropping. And I'm not so convinced, and please prove me wrong here, um, that the Europeans have followed this model, largely because you don't have the, the incredible space that we have in the United States. I think it would be easier... I guess what I'm saying is I think it would be easier for, say, the EU to go back to a smaller scale than it would be for the United States to follow that path. Would you agree with that? Well, countries in the EU have, um, are in a different situation. Uh, it, it's true that the average size of the farm in the EU is, is not as large as, as in the U.S., mm-hmm. although we do have very large um, production units in countries such as Germany, Denmark, or the Netherlands. But on the other hand, um, we still have an expectation of cheap food from the European public. Mm. Today, the typical European family pays maybe 13, 14 percent of the family budget for food um, items. It's comparable in the U.S. And that figure was about 35, 40 percent in the 1950s. So, the expectation that food shall be always cheaper, that the cost, the real cost of food shall continue to uh, decrease is an expectation that um, encourages politicians to encourage the, the, you know, the large-scale farming um, um, systems that they've been encouraging since the 1950s. So in this regard, and as regards the general trends, I would say the EU is basically um, following the lead of the U.S. Mm. in further industrializing, industrializing um, uh, food production. It's definitely true in the meat sector. Absolutely. Livestock agriculture, you are totally following the American model, as they are in China, as they are in India. Um, it's a great <laughs> misfortune <laughs> that we have been so successful in exporting this model around the world. Um, I want to just move on for a second to, um, you wrote a wonderful paper called The Political Economy of Food Systems Reform. And one of the points that really struck me in that was that it was not merely the agricultural practices that we've just been discussing, but also the production, the packaging, and the distribution that have a major impact on the environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yes. Look, when, when we discuss the relationship of uh, food to, the, to, to climate change and uh, the environment more generally, we usually focus on the first segment of the chain. Yeah. But in fact, what we've seen is that as a result of a, a, a taste of the public for processed foods, um, more of our food has been industrialized, has traveled long distances, has been processed by... Mm. Um, by, by means that are extremely um, energy thirsty. And as a result, we have food systems that use up or, or that are responsible for maybe one third, 34% of the total greenhouse gas emissions. This is enormous. It's, wow. it's enormous. And only a small part of this actually is what happens on the field. The rest mm-hmm. is in packaging, uh, processing, transport uh, um, of food and the, and the preparation of food uh, um, at, the final, at the final step before it reaches the plate of the consumer. So um, the only solution to decrease the ecological footprint of food systems is really to return to diets that are simpler, that are um, less based on industrialized food and, and yeah. more based on fresh food that have been um, 
either non-processed or, or, or much more weakly processed than the usual uh, food that we consume. Well, the usual food that we consume in the United States, because, I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 tra- I traveled a bit and, and um, I was in Europe last summer uh, in Italy, in France and in England. Um, I can't say much about the English food, but, you know, it is what it is. But in France and in Italy, it seemed that the, the local food culture was as robust as ever. I was in the countryside uh, in France and, and it was definitely very, very much geared towards, um, you know, low, uh, low impact uh, preparation, shall we say? Uh, maybe that's just because I was not in big city centers there. Um, but even in Italy as, as well, uh, the food in the cities in Bologna, in Venice—I mean, pff, unbelievable. You know, really. I mean, uh, Olivier, for example, uh, one of my favorite anecdotes about this is I'm driving in France with a friend. We stop at one of what we call a big rest stop here in the United States. You know, like off of Route 95 or something like that. And and where we have Subway and Dunkin' Donuts and McDonald's and Cheese Boy, I go into this rest stop. There's a little grocery store where you can buy some nice cheese, you can buy bread, you can buy wine, dairy products, whatever. And then they have a sandwich counter. And then they have a cafeteria where you can go in, you can have a, 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 a pâté de, de truites fumée or, you know, ratatouille. <laughs> I mean, it was it was mind blowing, my friend. It was mind blowing, and I'm thinking to myself, "What the hell? Can't we have that? You know, who said we had to have McDonald's at every rest stop? Ugh, you know, America." We should never forget that that food is not about micronutrients and macronutrients, and it should not be seen as, you know, a sort of medicine uh, right. meeting physiological needs. Food is essentially about meals being consumed mostly uh, together with other people, and it's part of culture. And I think one major obstacle we have today is that this food culture, this um, habit of having meals together that are prepared together and enjoyed together is a habit that is being lost. And as a result, people just use or eat food um, that is convenient, that is quick, that is fast, easy to prepare, And I think one major difficulty the U.S. shall have in the future, if it wishes to move towards healthier and more ecologically sustainable diets, is the loss of this food culture that, yes, we still have in some parts of Europe. Yes, absolutely. I mean, people, most people here cannot cook. I myself come from a culinary background. My family cooked. My parents were both very good cooks. I I was definitely in the minority as a child. I'm in my 60s now. And at that point, people were really trending towards the TV dinner. And the, and I thought that was really cool. I was like, I thought that was amazing. A TV dinner, everything comes in its little little slot, its little special thing. I was like, oh, it's so great. <laughs> Meanwhile, my mother would have made, you know, three square meals from scratch. <laughs> Drove my parents crazy. But anyway, uh, enough about me. Let's talk about me. No. <laughs> but let's go back to... Um, I want to talk about the plate of the union, actually, because I I don't want to miss that, because that I thought that policy paper was so excellent. And I've had Ricardo Salvador on the show several times. I absolutely adore the guy. I think he's brilliant um, and an incredibly articulate spokesman for that paper. And the thing that just uh, broke my heart about that whole initiative um, was that it, it did not, in my opinion, I could be wrong, and I hope you'll tell me I am. I felt that it simply did not get the national media, mainstream media coverage that I thought it so richly deserved. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit to why you think that may have happened or 
or correct me if I'm wrong. What what would have made it a more impactful statement, do you think? I think, first of all, I agree on whom, uh, how terrific Ricardo Salvador is. <laughs> and I, 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 I certainly agree on the fact that this uh, question should have been more widely debated than it has. Part of the reason why it hasn't is because it was the end of the presidency of Barack Obama, and yeah. we had many hopes that um, that administration would see the importance of developing a food policy for the U.S. that would make um, the U.S. a more healthy nation. And we were a, a bit hesitant about trusting the administration to take its initiatives in this regard to make this uh, become a reality or instead pressure it um, at the risk of, 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 of criticizing it and, mm-hmm. and making it more difficult um, for the, the Democrats uh, then to, to present a plausible, um, if you wish, uh, um, uh, uh, summary of, of their achievements yeah. for the next presidential election. Um, but more importantly, I think the food movement in the U.S. is very strongly divided. And between yeah. um, uh, the, those who come from the um, environmental scene and, and work on sustainable farming and permaculture, those who work on food justice uh, from, you know, ethnic minorities' uh, background, those who work uh, from a food sovereignty perspective, or the very few who work from a right-to-food perspective, and there are some groups that use this lens to study injustices in the food system, we don't have a unified food movement. And we have many small, well, quite influential and remarkable, but at the same time, small movements, if you consider this as a nationwide, uh, 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 from a nationwide perspective. And what we were hoping is that all these groups would unite. Now, when... Um, um, when Donald Trump was elected um, in November, we wrote another paper where we said, look, the the major uh, challenge here is the survival of U.S. democracy and the ability for people who've been repressed for many years and and who have been um, unfairly treated by the system uh, to to have a voice and to to help um, uh, rebuild uh, uh, an America that's different than the one that your president is portraying. <laughs> and, and I think the, the big um, uh, opportunity, but at the same time the missed opportunity until now, is to unify all these different groups behind the idea of a food policy. This is exactly, Katie, what's happened in Canada, where yeah. many different groups were arguing about food issues, and they unified behind a single people's food policy that Justin Trudeau had no choice but to um, list amongst the priorities of his administration when he took office um, uh, a a year ago. Uh And I think this is what we can hope, certainly not for this presidency, I'm afraid, but perhaps for a future presidency in the U.S. Yeah. You know, and the other thing that I I think really needs to be addressed here um, in terms of, you know, these various disparate groups, uh, all of them, you know, very high-minded and very worthy, but I, they fail abysmally in engaging the American farmer. Um, I, my experience of American farmers is that they view these groups uh, with great suspicion, unless they are already in the movement, you know what I mean? But the, but the rank-and-file farmer does not see these people as people who understand their work 
or what they're doing. Uh, they see themselves as constantly attacked because they use pesticides or they use uh, an herbicide or they use GMO crops or something like that. There's no, I really feel like these, you know, that that's why when we were talking earlier about the IPES and the fact that these various groups come together, it's not just um, advocates for, you know, food justice or social justice. It's, it's also, it's farmers. It's the industrial arm of agriculture. It's like you have to bring all of those people together to make the food policy. And this is where I feel like advocates like myself um, have really failed to uh, connect with the most core ele- constituency of making a food policy, and that's American farmers. Do you see any this movement? Is absolute, this is absolutely true, and it's a paradox in a way because the farmers are the first victims of the system totally. that they are trapped into, right? They are the ones who develop the, the cancers and, and yeah. the skin diseases that result from the use of pesticides. They are the ones that are trapped for years in an unsustainable level of debt. They are the ones who are forced uh, to comply with the requirements of the, the, the big buyers who control production, in fact. And they have all the reasons to revolt against the system and to espouse a different vision as to what a food system in the U.S. could, could become. But they are caught in their short-term calculations, right? And, yes. and it's very difficult for them to, to look beyond, beyond the horizon into, into, into something different. That is the role of, of, of politics. Now, if it does not come from the presidency, and it shall not come from this president, no. then we should turn to cities, we should turn to states, and many interesting things are happening at those levels, that mm. of municipalities, that of states or counties, and it is now at that level, I think, that we should invest our efforts to change the food system from the bottom up. Yes, I, I would agree with you there. I, I, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I'm, I am from a small state in New England. I'm from Rhode Island, and Rhode Island, which was once... Um, you know, a, a, a textile and uh, um, it had a couple of manufacturing elements, but it was a very, very big fishing state. It was it's called the ocean state because it's surrounded on three sides by water. We had a very robust fishing industry until the 1970s when we at that point had overfished so desperately that the fishing industry collapsed um, largely in New England, but especially in Rhode Island. And now the economy is reviving around food. And I think that's fascinating. And there's a lot of livestock production going on. There's some dairying going on. It's it's very very interesting to see how it's reviving, and I think that's quite um, quite uh, commonplace to this region, the Northeast region of the United States. But I, I wanted to go along here because I wanted to talk about some global issues because you're so um, you are so extremely knowledgeable, thanks to your work with the UN. And so when we look around. Um, uh, at the rest of the world, at global issues concerning food production, such as the exporting, you know, the American model of producing meat, like we spoke about, or land grabbing, um, <clears throat> is there an, or, or yeah, and the and the and you know the increasing marginalization of subsistence farmers or just small small scale farming in those regions, is there an agency or an NGO or something that is actively pushing back against the? current tide of consolidation and monopoly, which is kind of what characterizes agriculture now, especially in those sort of global iterations. Is there anyone, I mean, when you were working at the UN as a special rapporteur, like what role did the UN play or the FAO play in trying to mitigate some of these um, impacts from from market consolidation, for example? 
I know that's a big question. Well, look, Sorry. we have a very um, um, disheartening situation um, at global level. On the one hand, there is a very strong and encouraging consensus of governments on three issues. First, that we need to move uh, towards supporting smaller scale and diversified farming systems mm -hmm. and that the choices made in the 50s and 60s should be fundamentally rethought uh, um, in that respect. Right. Secondly, that we need to support food production that not only increases the amount of calories available per capita, but also, um, um, and more importantly today, that improves the quality of diets by investing in um, diversity in, in farming systems that translate into, into more diverse uh, diets that are healthier for the population. And thirdly, there's now consensus that we must move towards sustainable farming um, that respects the ecosystems and particularly uh, promotes the health of the soil. Yet, although governments since 2008 have pledged repeatedly in different international summits to move in this direction, who actually makes the choices are the big investors yeah. who have the ability to make investments in farming, a sector that has been under-invested um, in over the past 40 years. And unfortunately, what these investors are interested in is linking um, large-scale production to the high-value OECD markets of, of you know, consumers in the U.S., in, in Europe, and in, in, in Canada. And they are not very interested in supporting sustainable farming that can feed the local populations in short food chains. What would be the more sustainable way of doing things by relocalizing food systems and by having mm -hmm. um, a much more um, um, decentralized uh, mode of food production that would give less importance to these big agribusiness corporations? Uh, why do we need the private sector? Well, we need them because the government simply do not have the money it requires to build a new logistical system to connect uh, farmers to consumers, um, to, to invest in irrigation systems and so on. The private sector is needed because governments do not have that money. And so, um, unfortunately, we have a, 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 a disconnect between the discourses that are preached and the reality that's developing on the ground. Yeah, and I wondered if you um, – that, that makes me think about the World Bank, um, which has been a very um, efficient tool in promoting what was called the Green Revolution, um, as well as um, helping – you know, they theoretically help uh, developing countries manage their food policy. But it seems like more as if – that's why I was asking about the NGOs. Like, is there somebody else besides the World Bank <laughs> – that is, you know, trying to push back against uh, the corporatization of food production in developing nations. I mean, I don't feel like that's there's anybody else out there who's doing that. What do you think about the World Bank? Do you are you a supporter, or do you think that they uh, are, you know, more or less pushing a Western ideal of of you know corporate policy? The, the World Bank in the 1980s. Uh, was systematically encouraging countries to develop export-led agricultural production in order yeah. for these countries to have access to, to foreign currencies and to industrialize. That was a major mistake because it mm -hmm. marginalized small-scale farmers and it encouraged the development of industrial agriculture that made many agriculture-based countries dependent on not only importing chemical fertilizers and oil, but also on food imports, paradoxically, because they produced for export and they had to import 
even larger uh, proportions of the food that they consumed. Right. However, the World Bank um, in 2007, in November 2007, published a report, uh, the, a report titled Agriculture for Development, which is their um, annual World Development Report, in which it uh, acknowledged very frankly that it had um, made mistakes and that it uh, had made prescriptions that are now... Uh, um, not valid anymore. Mm. Um, it's it's difficult. It's a it's a cultural shift that's taking place in the World Bank that is very slow and 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 is uh, 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 not shared by by all the World Bank uh, headquarters. <laughs> that being said, what's important here really is that um, um, is that we have um, in the in the UN um, system um, we have no ability to address the power of uh, big corporations, the private sector. The question of power in mm. food systems that seems to me vital to address and to discuss openly is a question that is taboo. In no single communique at the end of G20 summits or at the end of international conferences on food security shall you see a reference to power in food systems and to the influence these big corporations have in defining policies uh, mm -hmm. of governments. That is, uh, however, a major issue, and yeah. we would need to be much more frank and transparent about the, the need to discuss the question of power and, and to move towards food democracy, which is the ability for uh, policies to be made accountable to the public and much more transparent. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, to me, it all starts, it starts and it ends with corporate c control over food policy. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, if we were to unwind all of the many strands of, you know, the politics, the market consolidation, the current business models, and and the expansion of the Western-style diet into developing countries like Vietnam or, you know, or China or, you know, any of the East of India. I mean, it just seems almost impossible to sort of get those strands teased apart so that each one of them is, is looked at uh, as part of the whole and that and corporate control has to be at the very top of that pyramid. But what, I mean, if you, if you ruled the world, what would your prescription be for where to start in terms of best practices? Would we start with, with exposing corporate control of food policy? Would we start with uh, better education of farmers, uh, shifting the sort of agricultural paradigm? What would be your prescription? <laughs> The big challenge, Katie, is there's no single place where to start because <laughs> all these elements are interconnected yeah. and all these components of the food system have co-evolved. So, for example, you shall not convince farmers to move to more sustainable farming practices unless consumers um, change their eating habits and, for example, have um, um, less reliance on heavily processed uh, foods and and, and shift to more plant-based diets. Um, and if you don't have the logistics that support the farmers in their ability to, to market in their own region, you will not have farmers uh, do something else than what the big commodity buyers want them to do. Yeah. And so all these changes at different segments of the chain must be uh, conducted together. And we need, um, you know, pathway thinking. We need to think in five, seven, ten years what do we want to achieve in terms of a vision for the food system in the future, and what are the steps that need to be taken in order to move towards that vision? That requires an approach that goes beyond agricultural policies alone, 
that considers together agriculture, environment, health, education, um, even social protection and, and wages for those working oh, yeah. in the food system. And unless we address all these issues together, including consumer uh, culture and information, we shall uh, always be caught in the, in the short-term uh, traps and, and we will not be able to make significant progress. And all of this is against the backdrop of climate change and the coming water shortages and the development of arable land uh, to house all of us. I mean, it's it's so it's it's overwhelming to think about. And I'm so glad that there are people like you and Ricardo and, uh, you know, Michael Pollan and, and Mark Bittman. But I, I actually like you guys better. Just saying. Don't tell him I said that, though. Um, <laughs> I think you guys you and Ricardo really seem to have this very much more sort of global um, perspective in a way. Um, anyway, that's just my opinion. But in any case, we have to wrap it up here. And I wanted to ask you to please let people know where they can learn more about your work, about um, IPES Food, um, and what you're working on next. Well, the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems is a bit like an IPCC on food. It tries to bring together existing science in order to make recommendations to policymakers that are informed by the reality of people's lives. And particularly, we work very closely with social actors because we do not believe that uh, science uh, can develop in laboratories or in universities alone. Science is something that can be co-developed with social movements, and this is why many of our recommendations are informed by the dialogues we have with NGOs, with social movements, with, with farmers, uh, with those working on the front line of, of hunger and, and malnutrition. And IPES Food is indeed a, a global initiative that um, connects experts from different parts of the world and from different disciplines that tries to help move the debate forward. And I very much hope that in the future this message about the need for governments to adopt a food policy that can make sense and bring us closer towards a vision of a sustainable food system uh, shall be heard uh, in the future by, by government. Well, if I have anything to do <laughs> with it, it's certainly going to happen with my listeners. Um, Olivier, thank you so, so much for joining me. I ho- will you come back again? Can I, can I contact you again to have another interview at a future date? That shall be with, with great, great pleasure, of course. Really? Oh, that's so great to hear. Thank you so much. And thank you to my sponsor, The Hearst Ranch. I'm pleased as punch and proud as can be that they are still one of our primary sponsors and one of uh, certainly one of my favorites. So thank you to them. And thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.